Amen. If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, as I indicated uh, last week uh, in the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, that we would continue uh, into Luke's sequel to his Gospel, namely uh, the book of Acts, uh, sometimes referred to as uh, the Acts of the Apostles. And even sometimes people make note and say, well, maybe they should have named it the Acts or Activities of the Holy Spirit. Because certainly, uh, while the Gospel of Luke uh, places the person and work of Christ in prominence, rightly so, as Gospel accounts do, there is uh, not only the prominence of the person and work of Jesus within the book of Acts, there's a prominence of what? Of the person and work of the Holy Spirit uh, that is emphasized uh, throughout the entirety of this book. To be sure, uh, it seems to me to be quite unique among uh, the books of the Bible and even the books of the New Testament in that it is very self-consciously a book of history, a historical book. Uh, Luke is self-conscious about what he desires to do to give uh, uh, order and accuracy uh, to uh, how it is, this, uh, uh, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, how it impacted these followers, the, the early church. And so I think it helpful uh, to think of uh, at least one theme. Now, there, there are many themes and many purposes that, that we're going to get into as we unfold and unpack uh, here in uh, the weeks ahead. But I, I think that if you constantly keep this particular theme before you, and it's really stated for us in verse 8 of chapter 1, and, and that is Jesus' words to these disciples, and I think by extension uh, their words to us by, by means of application, that you will receive power, and we have, and the purpose of that power is that we would be witnesses, and we are, to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Luke tells us of the earliest activities of those who received and sought to fulfill that mandate as they began awaiting there in Jerusalem, but yet over the course of the 30 years that Luke uh, covers in this particular book, we see uh, the gospel move from Jerusalem to the capital city of the known world, namely Rome, and it, it basically spread throughout that Mediterranean basin. It had an impact, an impact that I think still reverberates uh, today. And so we see that even amidst the opposition of both Jew and Gentile, even though the leading spokesperson for the, the, the uh, incipient uh, Christian faith, for the, for the gospel message, is actually in chains in Rome, the gospel will continue to be proclaimed in power and ultimately, it will not be hindered. It will not be thwarted in the accomplishment 
for that which God has sent his gospel. And so let's read this morning, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll talk today about the, the transition, the anticipation, and the preparation uh, for those who would accomplish this great initial mission of what we could simply say as of fulfilling the Great Commission. Read with me in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. When He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Al-Keldamah, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up uh, from us, one of these men must become with, us at, at, become with us a witness to his resurrection. 
And they put forth two, Joseph called Barsabas, and also one called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and they lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is your word. It is for us. Uh, it is your testimony to your work of redemption, uh, to the, uh, the life and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, his uh, resurrection, his ascension, uh, his ruling and reigning, and our awaiting his return. God, I pray that we would be found faithful. I pray that your spirit would indeed uh, be at work uh, among us today, that we would uh, know your truth for the sake of honoring and glorifying you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The challenge of rightly dividing God's Word is always relevant, it's always pertinent, and quite honestly, it's difficult at times. As we come to the book of Acts, I think we should be forewarned uh, that uh, it is a difficult book for us to uh, discern, uh, that is, what something means and by what it means, are we, to, are, to, are we to expect the events that are described within the book of Acts to be normative and associated with the church and with believers throughout the time that we await the return of our Lord? That is, as I think I, think I used the phraseology last week, uh, just because it, something is descriptive, it tells us something that happened, it doesn't necessarily mean it's prescriptive, that it's something that is going to continue to happen or that we should seek to uh, continue to happen. And so this uh, great uh, challenge for us is to, to separate that out, to, to, to rightly give the events that are described their proper place in the life of the church and yet not fall victim to, to errors and abuses that seem to be, to be fairly common, not only presently within the church, but throughout the 2,000-year history of the church. And so, uh, to be sure, we should live in and we should expect the powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our midst. As much as I'm not a charismatic, okay? And you can probably apply that in a number of different ways that you would define charismatic. But in a theological sense, I am not really a charismatic, okay? But you have heard me say many times that one thing that we might learn from the charismatics is they show up with the people of God in the house of God to hear the Word of God expecting God to do something dramatic. We expect to get out on time, okay? Uh, we expect to maybe catch a good nap. Well, that, I guess that's the Presbyterians. But, but anyway, 
we should have a deep sense that God is among us, that he is not only present, but he's powerful. And he is powerful to act, to change lives, even to change my life and your life. And so let's look, and I've got some words uh, kind of to continue this kind of framework of introduction, the first three verses of our text. And the author, I think uh, universally, is accepted to be the gospel writer Luke, uh, the Gentile physician associated with the Apostle Paul, possibly uh, from the city of Antioch. Uh, he was uh, uh, skilled as a historian, and he, his work will stand up against any of the works of the ancient historians, whether they be Josephus or others. He, he, he does a, a good job in compiling his information, in checking his sources, and then writing his information in a way that we can understand. So he, he is a competent witness and recorder to that which he writes about. We see here that he references his gospel, and again, the addressee of that first gospel. If you'll remember, one known as uh, Theophilus, and he describes that, uh, hey, I went all the way back to the Annunciation of John the Baptist, uh, to his, describe the unique way in which he was conceived, uh, then the unique uh, way that our Lord Jesus was born through the, the miraculous intervention, operation of the Holy Spirit, conceiving uh, the Lord Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And I've told that story of his life and ministry all the way up to what? To he was taken away from us. And now I'm going to start with the point at which he was taken away and give you the story of the expansion of the church, how the gospel was prepared proclaimed, what the impact was, described the results for those who were converted. I'm going to tell you a little bit about those that weren't converted and how they remained hostile to this Jesus and even those who proclaimed the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see how it is that the gospel, that creates what we might call the new Israel, namely the church, okay? I, I use that term kind of advisedly, the new Israel. That could be misunderstood. But again, we are uniquely the people of God, the church, the believers in the, the Lord Jesus Christ and how that moved from drastically uh, Jewish in its orientation and, and makeup to drastically Gentile in its orientation. Now, Luke is going to give us the narrative explanation as, as to how that came to be. Paul, if you're interested, gives you a theological explanation as to why that happened in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Why the Jews were hardened. Why they persisted in their rebellion and their reaction. And, and he's also going to tell us that both Jews and Gentiles would persecute, they would oppose the gospel message, kind of for, from differing perspectives, for different, but for different reasons, but also for the same reason, that they hated the idea of the, their being indicted for their sin and needing a Savior who was a Jewish carpenter that was crucified, and now the claim is he was raised on that third day. And so Luke gives us ample examples of the apostolic preaching. Of course, most notably, Acts 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. But we get other excerpts 
of other testimonies, witnesses, and messages. And so if you'll remember last week, I talked about we were charged, the disciples were charged to Caruso, to proclaim. To proclaim what? The kerygma. The sound doctrine, the explanation of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That charge hasn't changed. Our job is to explain to you who Jesus is, what he did, and what that means. Okay? So we are still charged with this core duty of communicating that uh, to you. And so he writes for the purpose of at least getting initiated uh, to sound doctrine. And yet, just in this book of Acts, you know, we just, uh, we're in the middle or toward the end of a, kind of the survey of the book of 1 Corinthians. And I always tell people before I do 1 Corinthians that uh, my advice to my classmates at seminary, if they had little church jobs, you know, I'd say, well, listen, if you go to a new church, first thing you need to do is, is preach through the book of 1 Corinthians. That way everybody will be mad at you. Because there are issues in 1 Corinthians that at least will get somebody mad about something. Okay? Uh, women in the church, divorce and remarriage, spiritual gift, all that stuff. You know, I, I could rub all of y'all wrong way with some of that. Okay? And probably do. To the glory of God. So, in the book of Acts, we have questions. What does it mean? that these disciples were baptized, as promised, in with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean for us here today? Are the supernatural workings of the Holy Spirit, healings, raising from the dead, tongues, prophecy, all of that, is that to have a normative place in the life of the church? We find women prophesying in the book of Acts. Are we, are we, does that mean we're to... Have women preachers? Is that the implication, application of that? What about baptism? What does it mean for somebody's whole household to be baptized? And what, what was the appropriate mode of that baptism? What is the effect of baptism? Taken right out of Acts chapter 2, verses 37-38, there are large groups that say, you must be baptized in order to even be saved. And so, there's all kind of uh, doctrinal confusion that has a direct link to our understanding of this book. And so I hope that we can tease, uh, if not all, at least most of these out for us. Of course, uh, we, we see an emphasis on God using, through gospel proclamation, the apostles, and we see the power of the Holy Spirit being manifest in their lives and in their work. I think there's a, a purpose or a fourth purpose uh, to the book. And, and Luke wants to have an apologetic to Rome. That is, the gospel and the church, Christians, we're, we're not here to be subversives. We're, we're not here to be radicals. We're not here to overthrow the state. And I think that's part of the purpose of, of Paul's life of persecution and his willingness to stand before the magistrates to give that witness, and Luke records that uh, for us. And of course, we see get varying snapshots of life in the early church, and certainly, I think it's a, a primitive church. I think a lot of things uh, were not well established, were not placed 
uh, in order, but we do get some glimpse of what went on. And so Luke gives to the, us this, uh, this great treasure that uh, helps us to have a better understanding of salvation, that the source of salvation is God Himself who accomplished our salvation in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the gospel is applied to others as we preach that gospel and the Spirit so works to save and we can see something of the results of that gospel for those who have uh, been saved and something of the nature of that gospel. So we have the, the gospel promised, accomplished, that it, it is uh, universally applicable uh, to the entire world, that, that it is unique and that it's effective. All of these things are part of the testimony that Luke wants us to have. It is my sense that he wrote the book probably in the early 60s. Now, why do I say that? And arguments from silence are always dangerous arguments, okay? But he doesn't tell us about the fall of Jerusalem, 70 A.D., okay? He doesn't really seem to have knowledge of the way Nero is going to persecute the church. And he leaves the Apostle Paul in prison in Rome, okay, several years before his execution, uh, which came in the mid-years of the, that 60 A.D. period. And so we're looking at a, a fairly early book that tells us, that gives us this accurate, unique witness to life uh, in the early church. Okay, so... Luke gives us this for our benefit, for our edification, for our good, for us to have insight into all of these things. All right, let's move forward. Verses 4 and 5, the anticipation of the promised Spirit. Speaking of Jesus, He commanded the, the disciples, you're going to remain in Jerusalem. There's something about to happen, namely, I have spoken to you about the Spirit of God. Everything Jesus said about the coming of the Spirit of God was an amplification of what had already been stated and promised, predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament. Most notably, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the nation of Israel. And the promise is that the law is going to be uniquely written on the hearts of those covenant believers in a way that was not true of Old Covenant, Old Testament Israel. That the promise of Ezekiel, that, that I'm going to replace this heart of stone with a heart of flesh. The prophecy of Joel, that the Spirit will be poured out upon all believers. They shall have all experience the presence and the power of God's Holy Spirit. The promises of Jesus, specifically, I, I'm going to give you a helper. I have been your helper. I've been your friend. I've been with you physically, but I am not going to be with you physically, but I'm going to send another that's very much like me. He is going to be your advocate. He's going to be your comfort. He's going to empower you. He is going to equip you to say what needs to be said in the moment. He's going to help you to recall what I've taught you and go, why didn't I see that in the first place? Yeah. So the Holy Spirit comes in all His glory, all of His beauty, all of His power. By way of example illustration, 
In verse 5, he makes an analogy. You know John's baptism. In fact, some of you were John's disciples. Some of you understood fully what John was all about. He came to the nation of Israel and basically said, do not depend on the fact that you have some type of tie, biological, uh, uh, family, whatever that tie is, religious, just because you stand in the tradition of Israel and have nominal allegiance to that law, do not think, because that is true, that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, because the kingdom of heaven is near, you need to repent. And that group, surely, sure, they had all the common sense to repent of, of lying and stealing and uh, adultery. As I've told you many times, we have to repent of our good deeds as well as our bad deeds. They had to repent that, that, that I've, I am saved and God is pleased with me because of what I do and what I don't do. And if you think that God is ultimately pleased with you because of something you have done or something you have not done, you are lost. Okay? If that is your understanding of salvation, well, thank God I'm not like that bunch over there. You're lost. Now, we all get cocky and say that kind of stuff. I'm talking about what you really believe genuinely in your heart of hearts, okay? We all pop off, don't we? Say amen all God's people. Yeah. So, they were called upon to repent. And, and Jesus took time to explain that John baptized with water, and that was very important, and it was looking forward to something else. Something that he described as baptism, but not a physical water baptism, but a spiritual slash spirit baptism in, with, by the Holy Spirit, which came to these first followers, there looks like there's going to be 120 plus, that, that came to these first followers on that day of Pentecost that was after they were converted. So that, that brings one of our doctrinal controversies. Are we to seek out what the Charismatics and Pentecostals call the second blessing? Is there an occasion that we should expect after we've been regenerated some very, very powerful work of the Spirit in our life and even that we would speak in tongues? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Now, I've said this many times. As I challenged Drew one time this week, go, uh, go back to the archives. It's in there. I said it. You'll find it. I've said this many times. I don't, I'm not a second blessing guy. But I am a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. That is, Christians that are growing in the Lord will have a lot of aha moments. Okay? They, they, they will, oh my, I, I didn't see that. Sometimes it's over a sin that you're thinking, ah, you know, that's, everybody does it or nobody cares. And you go, oh my gosh, wretched man that I am. Sometimes it happens like that. Sometimes it's just, I've read that passage a hundred times in the last ten years. And I, I see it in a whole new light. All of those things are realities of the, the work of the Spirit. But Jesus is promising that uniquely, once and for all, one time, there's going to be a working of the Spirit that will have implications for every Christian that comes after that. 
But their experience at Pentecost was once and for all, it is unique. And so I would argue that all Christians since Pentecost, the moment they are saved are baptized in with by the Holy Spirit. We, we have the fullness of the Spirit. We are born again. We are regenerate. And He remains with us to equip us, to empower us, as the song says, to cheer and to guide. He is there with us. It is the normative experience. But we have to separate the reality of the post-Pentecostal indwelling spirit and the phenomenon that occurred in Jerusalem and, and occasionally subsequently for the purpose of validation of the message and validation of inclusion. We'll see that as we work through these things. So we want to have a, a normative and biblical way of thinking of the work of the Spirit. We ought not be always thinking, you know, all kinds of crazy things. And, you know, I remember a few years ago, you don't see this much now, I guess people got tired of it. But there was holy laughter. And people would literally, you know, just foam at the mouth laughing. And of course, there's always a group that wants to flop on the ground. You know, back in my college days, there was a movie that came out. Not, I'm not advocating it. But in this movie called Animal House, there was a scene in which they caught, why are y'all laughing? Y'all are, not, y'all are not supposed to see movies like this, okay? It was called out, Gator! And it, I'm not going to demonstrate for you. Be relieved. But some churches think that that's the work of the Spirit if they go flopping around like a fish out of water. That's not the normative work of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit regenerates. Hearing the gospel message, the Word and Spirit come together and create life where there's death. I'm even open and to speaking of a work of the Spirit in terms of convicting of sin, uh, pre-conversion as a pathway to conviction, conviction that law being hammered upon the human heart by the Spirit of God, exposing the great reality of our sin and desperation, making us aware of the tragedy of hell. Those things are the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then, once He regenerates, He he fills and He empowers and He gifts us, He wires us up to function as the body of Christ, gifting us in different ways. We don't have time to get into all He He comforts us. Many of us have been through difficult seasons of life. And those of us that have, which is probably most of us, we know something of this power of the Spirit to comfort us. The Spirit illuminates the Word of God. Now, I don't have perfect understanding of the Word of God. There's things that still stump me occasionally, okay? And I'll scratch my head and go, oh, I don't know. And then somebody will come along and say, well, I think it means this. And I go, I've never thought about that. I've never, they may be right or may be wrong, but they're challenges. It doesn't mean, boom, I know everything about everything. I know you think I know everything about everything, or you think that I think I know everything about everything, but that's not what I think. You'll go back, go back and play the recording there and see what I said. Yeah, we don't automatically know everything. But the Spirit enables and guides us now here's the thing, 
it's not as though God drills a hole in your thick head and takes a funnel and pours in godliness and the knowledge of Scripture. You've got to study. Okay? You've got to apply yourself just like you do anything else in life. But we have a supernatural and able witness to guide us on the journey. So he illuminates, he, he convicts, and we talked about it a minute ago, the law upon the heart. Now, I, I, am, I am more than deeply disturbed, which means I deeply disturb y'all, okay? And I get it. But let me tell you something. When you look at a professing believer, and they go season after season after season after season after season in unrepented of and an unbroken sequence and chain of sin, that's troubling. That's troubling, okay? That... that why? Because the Spirit of God is one of God's means of disciplining, of correcting, of bringing us back to Him. Let me tell you, you know, you know who the most miserable person in the world is? Do you all know? You don't. It is a Christian who is persisting in sin. Let me tell you something. Somebody that's persisting in sin and they're happy and clappy and just, well, you know, I, you know, I get to live like hell here on the wor- in the world, but I'm going to heaven. Most likely they're lost. Okay? So he convicts us, that law written on the heart, and of course he constantly points us to Christ. He points us. If, if, if the Word of God and life in this world has taught me anything, all of the adversities, all the difficulties that are part of life, I know one thing. I may not know a lot, but I know one thing. I need a Savior. And His name is Jesus Christ. And I would not have figured it out without the work of the Holy Spirit. I would have stumbled, fumbled around and still be in my lost condition. So we see these initial orders. They were temporary. You're going to stay in Jerusalem. What I promised is about uh, to happen. And the Holy Spirit's going to come in a way that you have not previously experienced. Let's move forward into verse 6. We see this account of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. His return to the heavens as much as we speak of Jesus' resurrection as a stamp of approval, and it is and it was, okay? the ascension kind of functions in that same way. That God receives him into the corridors of heaven as the victorious son and as the ruling and reigning warrior king. Okay? Now, we'll say a little bit about this in just a moment, but we're going to talk about the kingdom, and I still insist that while the kingdom is present, there is a now, and there's a not yet. Okay? And we'll talk about that. But, but our Lord has ascended, right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning in heaven forever. Okay? Now, notice here, verse 6. They ask Jesus, among the last things that they want Jesus to answer for them, and remember this comes after the lengthy instruction that we call the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus says, now listen, you guys are so impressed with this temple, 
And you think that you're going to be occupying that temple and it's going to be your personal workspace. But I got news for you. It's going to be leveled. That blew their mind. And and they had no concept, they had no understanding of a kingdom without a capital city, Jerusalem, without its uh, uh, colossal accomplishment, namely this temple. And so they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now what are they asking? Lord, are you going to build your church and the church is going to go worldwide and there's going to be people saved from every tongue, tribe, and nation and, and we're going to be witness to, to that and, 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 and we're going to see this, this great expansion of this thing called the church. I don't think that's what they've got in mind. What they have in mind, Lord, we're sick of the Romans. We're sick of being trampled underfoot. We're sick of being second-class citizens. What we expect and what we want and what we want to know is there going to be one like King David, namely you, that's going to come to Jerusalem. You're going to sit on your throne. You're going to rule and reign with that rod of iron that's promised in Psalm. Is that time now? (laughs) And Jesus doesn't say no and he doesn't say yes, does he? Well, no, you're, you're right. That's what I'm about to do. No, no, you're wrong. No, you're, you're thinking, no. He, and look at verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons. Broad times, specific times. Chronoi times, caroi, seasons. Again, whether broad or specific, it's not for you. And I, I didn't see a single commentary that referred to this. But when I read this, it reminded me of God's word to Daniel prior to interpreting uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream regarding the colossal statue with the head of gold. And God tells Daniel about the reality that I change the times and seasons and I raise up and depose kings. Now, Daniel didn't get an exhaustive history of the world, did he? But he got kind of an outline of world history. And so... Jesus is saying, I'm not going to elaborate on the Daniel stuff. I mean, that just, that's just what comes to my mind. That, that I'm not going to give you details of the hows of what the kingdom, or how the kingdom is going to expand, or even necessarily uh, what it's going to look, look like. Those things, as, as uh, Deuteronomy records, they're, they're secret things, and guess what? They belong to God. Now, we love to speculate, don't we? We love to speculate what we think, what we know. Well, sometimes we don't know what we think we know. Okay? And so Jesus said that that, that is wisdom that, that should not be your concern. Now, you know, you hear me a lot of times allude to that journalistic, uh, what is it, an acronym? The, the five W's and an H. Okay, who, what, when, where, why, and how? Okay, any good lead paragraph in a newspaper article, a newspaper was a thing made of paper, it was folded in the middle, and had black, and, and they used to, yeah, they used to throw them on, on your front porch every, every morning. And if you got one in Birmingham, it had a lot of tire ads in it. That's what I remember. Okay. So, yeah. So, 
not yours to know. Something that the Father only knows. So when we get obsessed with asking a lot of questions that just simply aren't revealed specifically, we have to be careful. Now there's a way, and I had a discussion with one of the young men, he had some insight that uh, we ought to be kind of careful about the whens and the hows and the wheres of the kingdom. But there's also, and I agree, to, but, but the when of the kingdom is what? As far as we're concerned, it's right now. Right? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? I hope you are. If you're not, you're lost. So there, 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 there is a win. And, and, and the where is where? Right here. Right here. It's here. I mean, Jesus was asked the question specifically. He said, well, it, it's not going to be like you think, but it is among you. And it will be here until I come back. And, and we know a bit of the how. How, how is the kingdom expanded? Preach the Word. That's how it's expanded. It's very simple. See, I've, I've given you a kingdom secret here today. The kingdom of God is built, it is advanced, as the gospel is proclaimed, okay? And so, there is a, a now to the kingdom. We've already said there's, there's a not yet. I don't think anybody is arguing that I know of that the kingdom is in its final form. It's been perfected, it's been consummated. Every prophetic eschatological system speaks of the return of our Lord. That, that is, we're agreed. He's going to come. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to regenerate the earth. And He's going to bring in a new age that is distinctly different, but also in continuity with the age in which we live. Okay? And we're waiting for that day as citizens of a kingdom that is present, it is permanent, it is powerful. Okay? Uh, it will be preserved even through difficulty, and that's part of the purpose of Acts, that even though Jew and Gentiles tries to stamp out the church, the church endures through the power of God. We are citizens of that kingdom. Seems like sometimes we get into a, a debate, and I, I want to I maybe chase a rabbit for a minute if you, if you will allow me, but I think it's important. Now for me, and this goes back to my Beeson days, and even, even pre-Beeson, I had a pastor tell me one time that when people just want to talk about God, take note, be aware, or beware. Because sometimes they're moving toward a universalism because we must speak of God as revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. There are a lot of religions that can talk about God, but we speak about the God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we talk about God and God, but they don't want to talk about Jesus, red flag. Kingdom is kind of the same type thing. There was a guy at Beeson, and he was kind of a closet liberal kind of guy. You know, maybe not radical, but, but kind of. And you, know, and, and you saw this a lot with missionaries. The king, just talking about the kingdom. But not talking about the gospel and the church. And sometimes I fear this kingdom talk is cover, and what they mean is some type of universalistic or pluralistic concept where we're all trying to get to the same place. Okay? 
Now, it's, it's okay. I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong to speak of the kingdom. I'm just saying that's my background when you want to just out of the blue start talking about the kingdom, okay? That, well, it's all the people who love God, you know. So we're all trying to get the same place. All, all of these things. And the kingdom is exclusively made up of those who have believed, who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we advance that kingdom exclusively by proclaiming the gospel. Now, I said I wanted to go down a, a little trail. A lot of discussion, maybe even some consternation. But how do we, as citizens of a secular nation, live as citizens of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, you do realize that your first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Okay? We, we cannot compromise that. But what about the unbelieving world? How, how, do we, how do we relate to that? Well, again, first and foremost, we want to tell them about Jesus. Okay? But let me, if I were invited to speak in a public high school, heaven forbid. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But let's just say I was invited to a public high school. And just say, they said, now, Tim, we want you to come. But you really can't give the hardcore evangelistic Jesus is the way, truth, life, you know, the, the whole gospel. But what we want you to talk about is why the Bible, why Christianity is good for the world. Okay, we, we just, we, I mean, we've got kids, they're struggling to figure out which end is up. We've got boys that think they're girls and girls that think they're boys, and we've got those that think they want to act like they're married, and on and on and on it goes. And, and we, I, So I could go in there now, and again, I, I struggle with this sometimes. I really do. I want everybody to do well. I want them to flourish. And so to preach the wisdom and the law of God to someone without Christ is just making them happy on the way to hell, in a sense. In a sense. Okay, I get that. Now, is the best context for the preaching of the gospel, well, let's let them live like the devil. Let's let them get hooked on drugs. Let's let them have a half a dozen kids without being married. Let, let them be financially responsible and, ha and just absolutely destroy any hope they have of ever having anything in this world. And maybe in their brokenness they'll come to Jesus. Or is it better for a society that has some sense of a legitimate order where there's not chaos and people's minds haven't been absolutely surged and scourged by, by all kind of abuses? Is that a better context for life and even the preaching of the gospel? The law in every shape, form, or fashion does what? Points to Jesus Christ. Okay? So, let's, what would I say to these young people? Now, again, I would have to say, listen, there's going to be a source of authority. Somebody's going to have, a, have power. Someone is going to legislate and enforce morality in your realm. Somebody is. The question is, who's going to do it? And what is the basis for the moral code that they enforce? Is it the whack? out opinions of these absolutely insane people. Well, this is just the way I feel. 
and, and everything ought to be legitimized. And we ought to be able, you know, and, and again, the term, the, the autonomous self, the self-actualization, all of these things. You be what you want to be. Well, the Bible comments on that. In that day, Israel had no king, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes, and it was a disaster. Or would you say to them, there is a source of authority, there's a source of authority, there is a way of living that over the course of human history has proven to lead to wise living and even success. And so I would want to say to them, what does the Bible say about personal morality and physical intimacy? It says that it should be reserved for marriage and marriage alone. You will complicate your life if you compromise yourself in that area. There's so many ways, whether it's diseases, whether it's a child that, that is born out of wedlock, or whether it's the fact that you get so emotionally confused distinguishing lust from love that you drive yourself nuts. So, I would talk to them about that, that the best way to live is consistent with God's law. What about substances? I'm telling you this. There are things that if you start doing them now, you will never get over them. You will be 64 years old, and you will be a slave to substances. I had a, I had a friend tell me the other day that's dealt with a lot of drug addicts. He had a guy tell him that I'm telling you this, that if my kids were drowning and I were standing there and somebody were standing over here with a bag of drugs, I would have let my kids drown and grabbed the drugs. That's how deep those hooks get. And I would say it is unwise to open yourself up to those things. That sobriety is, is wise living according to what? An authority. Not, well, if it feels good, do it. I would tell them, the Bible says that lying is a sin. Let me tell you something. If you go to work someone and you lie to your boss, you're going to get fired. And guess what? It's going to be real hard to get another job. The Bible says you don't, you don't lie. You don't, you don't steal. You steal from your boss. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to get fired. That's going to follow you. That is unwise. That will lead to the lack of flourishing. That is it. So the, good, the best way to live is live with honesty. We see violence absolutely rampant in our culture. I put something on my Facebook page by a man named Jason Whitlock. He's a retired football player and on a lot of media platforms in which he challenged... LeBron James and others, to go back into the inner cities and talk to these black youths about the reality of your killing yourselves. You're shooting each other. This, this will not work. It's wrong to do that. It, 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 it just doesn't work. It's, it's unwise. It leads to the lack of human flourishing. That's God's wisdom. I mean, somebody's going to enforce a code of morality. Whose code of morality is it going to be? The guy with a gun says that my morality triumphs, I'm going to kill you. Be responsible. Do your homework. Learn, learn that there's somebody in authority. You may not like them, but suck it up, buttercup. There's somebody going to be telling you what to do, and they're not oppressing you. Do your homework. Be responsible. Take ownership of your life. Develop a skill. Life's tough. And listen, one of the bottom line things, life's tough. It's not fair. It's hard. 
Things are going to happen that don't go your way. People are going to wrong you. It's just the truth. But you need to learn that you're going to have to make a living. And you're either going to do it the hard way or you're going to find an easier way to do it. But you need to learn. And, and work is good. And flourishing is good. And prospering is good. This is the best way to do it. This is a kingdom principle. No, you can't be saved by doing well in life. But without messing your mind up with all this other stuff, you have a better chance of what? Hearing and understanding the gospel. That's what I mean when I speak of God's law being applicable to our time frame, to this world, even to the unbeliever. We can improve their lives to some extent. And hopefully, as Paul says of the law, it will be that teacher that drives them to Christ in its application. Now, it's tough. It's difficult to discern. Listen, I know you're going to leave here. I can see it now. I'm going to be standing at the door. You mean I can't wear blended fabrics? You, you mean that I can't plant uh, hybrid seeds? You mean I've got to trim my beard? You, you, now, you mean I've got to go kill the Amalekites? You know, my next-door neighbor, he mowed six inches over into my yard this week, and I'm going to go kill him. Right? You know, that, I mean, you've got to rightly divide, okay? Get that. Get that. All right. We could go on and on and on. But do you see what I'm saying? Biblical truth is wisdom in all places, at all times, and it's good. But you, you must, we're not advocating stoning homosexuals or anything. We're not, a, we're not a theocracy, folks. There are unique aspects to the law that were applicable at one time, in one place, that was the nation of Israel. The United States of America is not a theocracy. Okay? We need to be aware of that. Now, it, is, it exists under a theocracy. The Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns. And much like my parents, God seems to give us enough rope to hang ourselves. And that is absolutely what this society is doing. We are hanging ourselves with the freedom that He's given us. So, all right, let's move forward. The kingdom, it's not for you to know. It's fixed. It'll come. It's already here. And rather than being obsessed with some of these things, look at verse 8. A big old but. Don't be obsessed, but you will receive power. You're going to be my witnesses. Again, thematic verse right there. You're going to be my witness. It's a reality. You've seen it. You've heard it. You've touched it. You've felt it. You're going to be a witness to the reality of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is my plan, Jesus says. Folks, that's your plan for advancing the kingdom, to be a witness to the lordship, to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are going to be completely empowered and reoriented toward establishing my kingdom my way. I'm going to so work in you, you're not going to be concerned with this, these notions of the kingdom as you thought it should be. You're going to understand that the gospel is going to expand and I'm going to write the law upon the heart of everyone who believes. And that witness is going to be multiplied and duplicated and replicated many, many times over. And this kingdom will grow. It will be the greatest of all kingdoms. And I've said this before. I don't know how it's going to work out. Notice the how. I don't know how it's going to work out. But I've, I'll say this. If there's one Christian left on earth when Jesus Christ returns, 
The kingdom of God will be the greatest of all kingdoms because the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that spoke all worlds into existence resides within that believer. Okay? Now, I don't know what it's going to look like if, if we'll be a majority or we'll be a minority. I don't know. But I know this. We should be optimistic that the gospel will have its effect as we proclaim it. Okay? All right. So we see Jesus' departure. It's visual. He ascends into heaven. Very glorious thing. Probably Shekinah glory type things going on there with the clouds reminiscent of the transfiguration that Luke described for us. Essentially, the angels appear, say, okay, stargazing is over with. He gave you an assignment. That's go wait. You go back. Here's the deal. Jesus has ascended. He's gone. But He will return. Okay? He will return one day. And He will right all wrong. He will consummate His kingdom. He will perfect it. He will bring it to its appointed end. Final thing, very very quickly. The fourth thing, getting in, in verse 12, we see the replacement for the apostate Judas. Kind of interesting. Probably there's something to be said upon the emphasis they wanted to bring the number back to 12 being the new Israel, okay, 12 children of Israel, 12 children of Jacob, maybe, I don't know. Now, again, and I don't know which of the 12 apostles' names are on the stones of the new Jerusalem, uh, Revelation 24. So don't ask me, okay? I don't know. I don't know if it'll be Matthias. I don't know if it'll be Paul, okay? Get over it. Move on. So they return to Jerusalem. They're devoted to prayer. It's interesting that Peter's the one that's mentioned as speaking up. He preaches. He's typically thought of as that initial leader of the group. He preaches. He explains why it was that Judas went the way he went. And Matthias is selected. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying I agree with this argument. I just think it's interesting that clearly the Apostle Paul is an apostle. That makes 13 if Matthias is legitimate. Did the disciples get ahead of themselves? And, and here, here's the thing. Descriptive, normative. I don't want to see y'all out there on the concrete in the foyer rolling dice to figure out where to go to lunch today. You hear me? That is not the application of this verse. Amen? Okay. That's what they did. I don't know if it was the right thing or the wrong thing, but it happened. That's what's described here. They chose him. He became one of the twelve. And they are now prepared. They are prepared. They are anticipating the fulfillment of what Jesus promised. Namely, this arrival of the Spirit. And so, we have in Luke a faithful account that is purposeful. That is, it's theological, it's orientation. It It is selective. It doesn't tell us everything. I know there's stuff y'all want to know. And God decided he didn't want to tell you. Okay? It's kind of like an adult with a child. There's just some things. What? Adults don't want to tell the child. Well, there's some things God's not going to tell you. You wait and see. All right? So it's selective. It, again, reminds us of the completion of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His ascension, again, testimony. 
that he is ruling and reigning and he's interceding, that that atonement was indeed effective. He is the, Jesus is the sovereign and ruling king and he will return to make all things right, okay? I, you know, it, it's a bit like me looking at somebody's home and a parent and a child. I have no right to say to any parent, this is what you ought to let the child do and this is what the child, you ought not let the child do. So I have no right to look at Jesus who rules and reigns and say, we ought not let this happen and you ought to stop that. Those things will work themselves out according to God's own purpose. Make no mistake about it. He rules and He reigns. Okay? So, He, he did what He promised. The Spirit will be sent. Okay? We see the story of the church unfold its message, its mandate, its method, its manner, its motivation. We see its failings. We see what sin does in the life of the church. All of these things are going to be unfolded uh, in the book of Acts. The testimony of the church beginning in Jerusalem and ending up in Rome. And it is a testimony to the power of God not only manifested in the resurrected, ascended Lord, but manifested as the Spirit works through the proclamation of the Gospel until the day that He returns. We live in the fulfilling of that promise. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness, for Your grace. Thank You for Your truth. We pray understanding. Uh, Lord, uh, we began another difficult endeavor, and so Lord, we confess, and we joyfully confess, that we are dependent upon your Spirit. Work among us, work in us, work through us, and we pray that you would be pleased by that which we would do, because you have entrusted to us this sacred gift and this sacred truth of the gospel of your Son. And we ask these things in His name. Amen.